we never lost sight of the fact that this was also about kids. Right. And even if it wasn't kids, even if it was adults, these are people that are being victimized and exploited in the worst way possible. What do we need to have in place to provide that support? Welcome to After Action, True Stories of the Diplomatic Security Service. I'm your host, Damaris Garcia. DSS Supervisory Special Agent Kayla Bokeman knows a thing or two about child predators and how to stop them. In 2017, she worked with Costa Rican and U.S. law enforcement to take down an international trafficking ring that was exploiting victims as young as eight. We talked to Kayla today about this complex investigation and how DSS helped put these dangerous criminals behind bars. Why don't you tell us a little bit how you ended up in DS to begin with? Before DS, I actually was a Peace Corps volunteer. That's how I started out. I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Zambia, and that's where I in- initially learned about DSS. My first field office was San Francisco. I worked uh, human trafficking cases there. I was on the human trafficking, uh, the Bay Area Human Trafficking Task Force. My counterpart and I in the San Francisco PD worked a big trafficking case out of Taiwan where women were being brought in to, uh, for purposes of uh, sexual exploitation. Were you assigned, it just so happened that you were assigned these cases, or did you gravitate towards these types of cases? Everybody in the field office starts off uh, doing what we call simple passport fraud cases. You can figure out how a case works, right? You can write uh, the indictment, swear it out, go and do the arrest warrant or search warrant in some cases to then uh, prosecute passport fraud. Well, from there, I was asked to sit on the Human Trafficking Task Force, the Bay Area Human Trafficking Task Force, and that's how I got into it. The San Francisco uh, Vice Unit was the one that asked me to partner on the case. They were seeing these women that looked like they had legitimate visas from Taiwan working in brothels, and that's how we got into it. And they were legitimate visas. There was a document fraud vendor in Taiwan producing uh, fraudulent documents that uh, was permitting these these women to get uh, real visas. Uh, real U.S. visas. So you had a lot of experience before you even got to Costa Rica. Tell us a little bit about how you first heard the initial sort of lead for this investigation. Well, what it was is I arrived in in Costa Rica in 2015. My first initial setup was to go out and actually meet my counterparts, my host country counterparts. And because let me tell you, nobody walks up to another agent and says, hey, I want you to help me with this case. They don't know you. They don't know who you are. They don't know What's your philosophy? How do you work cases? And what's the priority? So who did you consider your host country counterparts? The special agents, the federal, I should say the federal agents that work for, it's called OIJ. That's Costa Rica's federal office or Got federal it. agents. So kind of FBI equivalent. Or DSS equivalent. Got it. Oh. <laughs> really, it would be, yeah. They don't, have, they don't have a distinction in Costa Rica of like different agencies, uh, law enforcement agencies. It's all one federal unit. It's a smaller country, only four and a half million people, so smaller unit. But also, most importantly there also are the prosecutors. The prosecutors are the main driving forces behind the cases and actually do a lot of work that we in the United States as agents also do. I didn't want to just stop with agents. Of course, I want to know them. But I also, in Costa Rica, definitely have to know the prosecutors because they're the ones that really drive these cases. Okay. I spent a lot of time going out, talking to the prosecutors, talking to agents, talking to whoever I could in the government, right? I would help them with smaller cases so that they got to know me and they know that they could trust me. 
And then we worked on a, a rather large human smuggling case in November of 2015. And that was the first time I had really worked with uh, the prosecutor, Angie Trejos, who's just remarkable, remarkable prosecutor in person. She's just wonderful. So that's how I got to know her, was working on this case. And Angie's philosophy on working a case and my philosophy, and really all of, in my opinion, all of DS's philosophy is you're always looking at what is that next step up? What is that next level up? What is that global outreach that we can have? Well, we're here to talk about the big case out of Costa Rica. Warm us up. What was the name of the case and how did it come to you? So it was called Reno, and it was really basically rescue innocence is what it would be the equivalent in English. How it came to us, well, Costa Rica got the case, or they, they discovered the case. And how they discovered the case is one of the victims actually came forward. So they started to work on this case, and, they, um, and Angie was the lead prosecutor. When, when you say one of the victims came forward, so one of the children came forward? One of the children uh, told her mom what was going on. And that's how the case initially started. Now, they hadn't brought it to me, obviously, at this point. Um, they're just looking at it, trying to figure out what's going on. It's very local. About six, nine months later, they get into the case, and they realize the, the child pornography, the material is being produced in Costa Rica but distributed out of Mexico mm. to an international audience. You have these international links, right? These transnational criminal organization is now global. So what gives DSS, in that case, jurisdiction? I mean, what does this have to do with the United States? <laughs> it's a, people have asked me that before. Well, first and foremost, we are talking about kids being uh, sexually exploited and abused and treated in a horrific manner. Second of all, we're dealing with material that is going from Costa Rica to Mexico to worldwide distribution, including the United States. So we had people here buying and accessing that website. Also, the way their money was working is they started out with people used to just put down their credit card. But as things evolve, well, then it goes into generic cards, credit cards. Mm -hmm. Then it goes into cryptocurrency. So we have to stay on top of all of this, right? Because as these criminal networks change and morph, we as well have to enable to keep up with them and to take them down and dismantle them. Also, when you think about it, those transactions, they were going through United States banks. So... We want to ensure the integrity of our systems as well. And then finally, it is, it is well known and documented that people that do buy that material, they're never actually at some point will be satisfied with just looking at the pictures. They will go out and assault kids. So we're in fact keeping everyone safe. So you get a call from the prosecutor. This is a person you've already built trust with and they've done some investigative work. Yes. What were your next steps? So they called me in and they said, hey, we would like to invite you into a case. And I'm like, oh, great. I'm thinking another smuggling, human smuggling case. This was great. And I'm, I'm really excited. And they're like, we have a child pornography case. And I'm like, whoa, wait a second. Like, this is not my area of specialty. You know, I, I would be happy to coordinate U.S. efforts and get some, some experts out here, but this is not my area. And uh, the head of OIJ, his name's Walter Espinosa, looks at me and he says, hey, Kayla, if we wanted to call someone else, we would. And we can. We have their nut. We have their numbers. We don't. We want you to work on the case. We know you'll do anything to get this, this case prosecuted. You'll help us in any way possible. And I was like, all right, good enough. Um, sure. <laughs> so uh, that is initially how it came. 
So my role, my role in this, I mean, Angie Trejos was the, it was a prosecutor and she's, she's leading it. And then you have Walter Espinosa, who is in charge of the federal agents. He's making sure his agents are doing the right thing as well and, and their role in it. But Angie is ultimately leading this. And so my role is to bring that global reach to them so that they can get the information they need, whether it's buyers from the United States, buyers from France, buyers from Australia, wherever it is. And then also reach out to my counterpart up in Mexico and say, hey, you know, we know it's being distributed out of Costa Rica, or I'm sorry, produced in Costa Rica and distributed out of Mexico. Can we work together to take down the entire network? Because again, Angie's philosophy and, and all, our, our, all our philosophy is it's great if we just arrest them and that stops that particular group producing it, but it doesn't stop it from being distributed. And once they have those images, they can just keep distributing them. So what do we do to take the whole network down? And so again, that's where this coordination and collaboration comes together to, in, in order to break down that network. But it took a lot of effort to get us coordinated on, on the Costa Rican side, to get the authorities on the Mexico side coordinated, and to take it down at the same time. Because in this particular case, we wanted to take it down at the same time. Because if one heard about the other, they'll just close up shop and go underground. How many different people are we talking about here? To do this in June of 2017, it was a coordinated effort of basically 140 agents, prosecutors, judges to hit 13 locations for search warrants and arrest 11 people. So the search warrants were predominantly in Mexico? The search warrants, interestingly enough, the search warrants were predominantly in Costa Rica. And uh, we arrested five in Costa Rica, but they uh, arrested six up in Mexico. I think partly it's because they were doing different locations to produce the material. Did any of them get prosecuted in the United States? None of them got prosecuted in the United States. And the reason for that is because they were committing the crimes in their respective countries. But that's a great thing about DS. We actually don't care where people are prosecuted, right? What matters is that they are prosecuted, they're held to account, and justice is served, especially for the victims. How are these criminals targeting these victims, or how are they how are they looping people into this? I'm going to talk about this specific case, but I think it can be general in many ways. The two main perpetrators were actually uh, well-known photographers in Costa Rica, and they had taken different photos of Costa Rica, and they had actually been published in several international nature magazines. So there was like a legitimate business kind of There was a legit business on that side. And so what they did is they would go into these economically depressed areas of the city and the country and put up flyers about talking about being a model. Do you want to come be a model? And it was always for kids, right? And so what would happen is, is these kids would come, and then the first couple of shoots would seem legit. And then after that, they'd be like, oh, you know, can you, we want you to pose nude. Well, by then, parents had already signed waivers for their kids. They thought everything was legit. You know, it's really preying, in my opinion, preying on these families and these kids' hopes and dreams, especially coming from these economically depressed areas. So once after the third, fourth time, well, now they're in it, right? And they're getting some money, not a lot, but they're getting money. And so they're like, Oh, okay. Well, then if they weren't willing to do it, then that's when the threats would start. We'll kill your, we'll kill your parents. We'll rape your sister or your brother. We'll do what we're doing to you, to your younger siblings, right? 
Can you tell us a little more about how this, this case related to trafficking? They would have to take the minors. They would bring them to a studio or to another photo location, which would usually be like a, a hotel or an, like an Airbnb or something like that, right, a house. And that is where then they would set up these photo shoots where they then would sexually exploit them. So this movement of children to create these images and to sexually exploit them, that's where that trafficking comes in. And that's where Costa Rica's laws were written in a way that actually covered it, right? So that um, any movement of a child for the purposes of sexual, sexual exploitation is considered trafficking. And that's pretty much an international standard. When, when you're talking minors, and movement of them around for that purpose of sexual exploitation. You do get trafficking. So the photographers were able to gain the trust of the parents and then isolate the kids. Obviously, we didn't have parents who were complicit or even understanding what was going on. No. Oh, that's horrible. All the parents did not know what was actually happening in, this partic- in these cases, unfortunately. And then when one parent finally did find out, they immediately went in and uh, said what was happening so that the investigation could kick off. How long did it seem like this was going on? This particular group started in 2009, so it wasn't until 2015. Wow. Um, late 2015 was my understanding uh, was when it act- they actually showed up. Were you able to ascertain how many victims were involved? We were able to do that. It was about 27. Okay. So 26, 27, depending on which report you read. The affidavit says 27, so that's one I went with. But, uh, you know, one part of this that is very important and, and something that uh, needs to also be discussed is, of course, we were doing our investigation. We're looking at expanding it and, and working with Mexico authorities and the, the ARSOI up in Mexico um, so that we can take the whole network down. But we never lost sight of the fact that this was also about kids. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and even if it wasn't kids, even if it was adults, these are people that are being victimized and exploited in the worst way possible. What do we need to have in place to provide that support? And Costa Rica has a very good uh, social services network, so we made sure that we had some, uh, you know, some people on board that way. We also worked with a non-governmental organization or an NGO uh, that also works in the trafficking realm that provides uh, support to victims. Because we knew when we took this down that you know, we wanted to give the proper support to the kids. Not just the kids that were victimized, but also kids that we later found out were in the queue to potentially be victimized. So that's where we wanted to ensure that we, we were looking at this holistically and taking a very much victim-centered approach to, to the case. What about dealing with multiple countries at once? Was it hard to get Mexico on board? It really wasn't that difficult. They were brought in a little bit later, so they needed time to get up to speed. But once they were up to speed, it was pretty much good to go. Now. We were still waiting for the judge to sign off on the arrest and search warrants up in Mexico when we were standing at the doors of our guys here. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, so we had to push a little bit because we had to make sure our evidence didn't get stale. Here in Costa Rica. In, or yeah, sorry, here in yeah. Costa Rica, not here in the U.S. No, right. Sorry, I, I go right back into yeah, no. <laughs> where I was. I still remember standing there, you know, as in the line of cars waiting to go in. Now, I was I was written into the search and arrest warrant because that's what Costa Rica needed to do to give themselves and me cover and that I could participate as an advisor. But I'm standing, you know, we're all standing there waiting to go in and we're just waiting for Mexico's judge to sign, <laughs> to sign everything. But they did it. We executed it all at the same ta- time, thank goodness. And it went down uh, on the same day and, and everybody was caught. So that was great news. And you were able to actually be there yes. as a witness to so, finally, yeah. the, this is how we 
yeah. wrapped the case up, right? Yes, that was nice um, to, to be there. So the, the officers with um, OIJ and what's also called Forza Publica that down there went in to actually do the arrest. Um, they, they put the main perpetrator uh, in, in handcuffs, and he was sitting there. Um, and then we just ripped his house apart. I imagine you found quite a bit if he was already also running like a, a legitimate photography business, right? His house was was rather, I thought, it was rather dilapidated for for uh, for what I was expecting. So what was happening is he lived in his house. It was like a one bedroom little house, but then his studio was separate. So that was the difference. His studios were quite nice. I, I didn't go into there. I was um, at his house to to be there when he was arrested. And then, yeah, then we ripped it apart. We found lots of evidence, of course, um, that further just uh, solidified the, really, the ironclad case that Angie had created on, on these guys. So there was no concern that the case would not be successful in terms of prosecution? I never had any doubt. I mean, Angie is truly remarkable. Uh, when she makes a case, it's ironclad. Frightening, really. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, she has you in, your cross, in her crosshairs. It's it's. It's trouble. Um, you, you definitely have done something. So she does not waste her time on trying to get going down rabbit holes. She has got you. The, the worrisome part was if our evidence would get stale, right? Oh, you know, they did that six months ago, but are they still doing it right now, right? Interesting. Doesn't, in my opinion, it doesn't really matter. Right, right. But you don't want to give these people any type of leeway, right? We wanted it to be ironclad. And so we had them. They were running wiretaps. Um, which isn't unusual. We wanted to make sure that, you know, again, nothing got too old, which is why at the end we were like, we have to get going, right? We have our evidence enough to get the arrest and uh, search warrants really to prosecute successfully. We can't wait much longer. So Mexico stepped it up and they did it. So that was awesome. So when you entered the house, right, you're, you're waiting to jump in and go through the house. What were those first few minutes like? You know, because you're all in the moment. And we had jumped out of the car. The car door had kind of slammed back, and I busted the work iPhone. Thank God it was not my personal iPhone. Busted my work iPhone. But you're going in because you're, you're trying to get in quickly. You're trying to make sure nothing, uh, no evidence gets destroyed. Um, and you go in, and it's just, it's also kind of surreal because here now was over a year's worth of work for me, but two years for, for Angie. And you just, you want it so badly to go right, and you want to find more of those smoking guns, right, because you want as many as you possibly can so that we can get the perpetrators the, the time they deserve. And with that, we went through, I'm opening up different drawers, I'm opening up a bureau, and when I open it up and I see all these, these kids' clothes that have been used in the modeling shoot, and it just like, it, like ripped me apart and then we're going further down we've been there for hours now you know we've ripped up floorboards we've ripped off a paneling on the wall we're looking for any electronic media device as well it's small right so we're looking for everything and Angie and I are standing there and we're going through these boxes and we open up one of the boxes and in there is a stack of uh, applications over 120 applications with all these kids names on it and parents have signed the waiver you know thank god for people like angie you know and, and angie going and finding 
you know, DS and me and, and everybody that just wants to come out there and do this and work so hard to not, insure, not only ensure that the, the 27 victims get their, their justice, but that we no other kids have to go through that. That was a, a, a moment when it, it all becomes very real. So you told us you were able to secure convictions for folks in Mexico and in Costa Rica. What kind of time we're we talking about? So in Costa Rica, I'm not 100% sure on the Mexican side. Uh, I do believe they, they got upwards of 10 years yeah. for the distribution. But on our side, the two main perpetra perpetrators each got 797 years wow. sentence. Wow. Uh, because they were brought up on the 27 charges of each child. Um, not, so they got them for trafficking, for rape for sexual exploitation. So each one, they, they got hit with all three, they got hit with those three charges for each of the 27 uh, cases. Unfortunately, no, it is what it is. Um, in Costa Rica, the constitution says that you can't actually spend more than 35 years in prison. So they will be let out after 35 years, but since both are in their 40s, I think it'll be okay. It was really great to know that, that um, and I thought it sent a great signal uh, to everyone around and in Costa Rica that they are serious about these cases and investigating these cases, prosecuting them, uh, to then give them 797 years each. Thank you so much. This work on this case was, was really, really important. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. All right. All right take care.